Our next guest, Senator John Barrasso, argues that it will overheat the economy and fuel inflation. What's your response? I totally disagree. The fact is that it's strongly bipartisan across the country. It's only in the Congress of the United States where the Republicans have refused to meet the needs of the American people, where they didn't vote, as I said of them, uh, vote no and take the dough. You can be sure that all of their states and communities will be benefiting from this and they won't be complaining about it back home. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and top Democrats out promoting the COVID relief package as stimulus checks start hitting bank accounts with so much money being pumped into the economy. The question is whether it could be too much of a good thing. And the crisis on the southern border. The Biden administration sends FEMA to help manage the surge of unaccompanied minors. The question is, how will the U.S. government safely accommodate the more than 4000 children in custody? Plus, the latest on the scandal surrounding New York Governor Andrew Cuomo as Democrats turn up the heat and urge him to resign. The question is, where does the president stand? It's way too early for this. And welcome to Way Too Early, the show that's also following music history being made. We're going to get to that just ahead. I am Casey Hunt on this Monday, March 15th. We'll start with the news. The president and vice president will hit the road to begin promoting the new COVID relief package this week. The president begins with an event at the White House today, while Vice President Harris will appear at a COVID vaccination site in Las Vegas. Tomorrow, the president travels to Pennsylvania, while the vice president will be in Denver. Both the president and vice president plan to visit Atlanta on Friday. This comes as stimulus checks have already begun hitting some bank accounts. The first payments came Friday, just a day after the president signed the bill into law. You may remember the first round of checks were delayed for some Americans who received them in the mail because former President Donald Trump had insisted that he sign them or that his name appear on that check. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen played down the risk of inflation as a result of this COVID age. She said the greater risk is unemployment and job loss. Is there a risk of inflation? Um, I I think there's a small risk and I think it's manageable. Um, You know, prices fell a lot uh, last spring when the pandemic surged. I expect some of those prices to move up again as the economy um, recovers this spring and summer. But that's a, you know, a temporary movement in prices. And as more and more states began to ease COVID restrictions, Dr. Anthony Fauci warned yesterday that this isn't the time to declare victory against the virus. He also suggested that former President Trump encourage his supporters to go get the vaccine. We absolutely need to avoid the urge to say, oh, everything is going great, which it is going in the right direction. But once you declare victory, you know, that metaphor that people say, if you're going for a touchdown, don't spike the ball on the five yard line. Wait until you get into the end zone. And we're not in the end zone yet. And that's one of the issues that when you plateau, there's always the risk of a surge. That's exactly what the Europeans have experienced. According to a recent poll, 49 percent of Republican men said they don't intend to get the vaccine. How much of a difference will it make if President Trump leads a campaign for 
the people who are most devoted to him to actually go out and get the vaccine. Chris, I think it would make all the difference in the world. He's a very widely popular person among Republicans. If he came out and said, go and get vaccinated, it's really important for your health, the health of your family and the health of the country. Uh, It it seems absolutely inevitable that uh, the vast majority of people who are his close followers would listen to him. I'm very surprised at the high percentage of Republicans who say they don't want to get vaccinated. I don't understand where that's coming from. This is not a political issue. This is a public health issue. A very important reminder. Meanwhile, Biden administration officials tell NBC News the United States has no plans to share its stockpile of AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine with other countries, despite requests from the European Union. Right now, the Food and Drug Administration is waiting for additional data on the AstraZeneca vaccine before deciding whether to clear it for use in the U.S., The vaccine is already being used in Europe, and officials there have asked the United States to share some of its stockpiled doses in order to help with vaccine shortages in the European Union. All right. Joining us now, White House reporter for Politico, Gabby Orr. Gabby, uh, good morning to you. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, Let's start just uh, generally uh, with the the politics of the vaccine rollout distribution, the sales of the stimulus. Biden and Harris, President Biden, Vice President Harris going to be out uh, across the country trying to convince people that they're the ones that sent them the help that they need, that they're focused on them, uh, and also to try and convince them Uh, to get vaccinated. What do you see as the challenges uh, facing the Biden-Harris administration this week? Well, I think the big question is how much pushback are they going to encounter from uh, Republican lawmakers as they go to different congressional districts this week and campaign across the country to really sell this bill? Um, We've already seen that it's fairly popular in in polling. There was a CBS poll released over the weekend that showed that 71 percent of Americans do believe that the American Rescue Plan will help the middle class. And so among, you know, middle class families and American workers, this is already a very popular plan. So there's not much that the president and the vice president will have to do to sell it necessarily. Uh, But they will have to overcome questions that Republicans are raising about what this will do to stimulate the economy, um, how much it will add to the national debt. um, And, you know, all of the questions that still surround uh, American vaccinations for coronavirus, which Dr. Fauci raised this weekend. And in terms of pointing out how many Republicans are resistant to the idea of actually getting a coronavirus vaccine and what that means for our country long term as we really fight to end this pandemic. Yeah. And, and speaking speaking of that, former President Trump and, and, and Fauci calling on him to say, hey, tell tell your supporters that it's really important for you to get this vaccine um, if you're Former President Trump, I mean, why not do that? He, he wants credit for Operation Warp Speed. He wants people to believe that he had a role uh, in this. And yet he didn't go out and get vaccinated himself in public. And so far, he hasn't sent that message that Fauci is asking him to send. Well, well, he did at the Conservative Political Action Conference, to be fair. He, he told uh, a group of his supporters there, which obviously is much more limited than sharing this with the American people writ large. But he did say, you know, everybody go get your shot um, about the COVID vaccine. But you're right, Casey. He hasn't joined on to uh, the ad campaign that, that features the former president's club. Um, you know, every other living former president and their wives have 
been out there publicly saying it's important for Americans to go get the coronavirus vaccine. And for some reason, uh, former President Trump declined to participate in that effort. And so, you know, there is certainly more that he can do to convince his very loyal base and followers that this is completely healthy, that it's something that they should um that they should take care of. And yet uh, his his remarks have been fairly limited, really only to the CPAC convention just yeah. a couple of weeks. Well, and Gabby, you know, it, this ties into, I, I saw the story that you posted uh, over the weekend. You're looking at how Donald Trump's actual post-presidential life doesn't necessarily look like what we expected that the headline was he's supposed to be political Godzilla in exile, but that that's really not what's actually happening. It's not. I mean, what we've seen from the the post-Trump presidency so far, the, the former President Trump, is really somebody who's caught between being, you know, an, an antagonist of the Republican Party or cooperating with the GOP and being the kingmaker that so many Republicans have said he's quite capable of being. You know, on the one hand, he sent those cease and desist letters to party committees a couple of weeks ago, urging them not to use his name and likeness for fundraising efforts, basically saying, I'm trying to take control of the money flow to the Republican Party, and, and you must meet my demand. Um, and then he turned around a week later and offered up his his Mar-a-Lago estate to host a Republican donor retreat. And you know he's he's been vetting potential insurgent primary candidates, but also sending out very conventional endorsements of incumbent Republican senators. So he is really torn between kind of two paths here. And right now, his allies, the people that I'm speaking to or who are surrounding him, um, don't really know what kind of what his post-presidency is going to look like. And he's got a lot of a lot of legal issues as well. Politico's Gabby Orr, thanks very much for getting up early to be with us this morning. We really appreciate your reporting. And still ahead here, President Biden weighs in on the harassment allegations against New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, but stops short of calling for his resignation. Plus, after 20 seasons in the NFL, New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees is hanging up his jersey. We're going to have those stories and a check on your weather when we come right back. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Welcome back. Time now for sports. The men's field of 68 NCAA tournament teams is set. Gonzaga is this year's number one overall seed, no surprise, boasting a 26-0 record as the AP polls wire-to-wire number one team. The Bulldogs will try to become the first team in 35 years to complete a perfect season. Baylor, Illinois, and Michigan were awarded the other top number one seeds by the selection committee yesterday. Michigan and Illinois are two of nine Big Ten teams in this year's tournament. 
the most of any conference. Four teams that didn't make it, Louisville, Colorado State, St. Louis, and Mississippi, have been put on standby to potentially replace any team that might withdraw by tomorrow night because of health concerns. After that, if a team pulls out, its opponent will automatically advance. The madness begins when the first four games tip off on Thursday. Bit of an unusual year for brackets. All right. The Drew Brees era in New Orleans is over. The quarterback has decided to retire after 20 NFL seasons, making the announcement with the help of his four children in a video posted on social media yesterday, 15 years to the day after he signed with the Saints. After 15 years in the Saints and 20 years in the NFL, our dad is finally going to retire so we can spend more time with us. That is very, very sweet. The decision comes after the 42-year-old won nine of 12 regular season starts, missing four games this year with multiple fractured ribs and a collapsed lung. A future Hall of Famer, Breeze is the league's leader in career completions and yards yards passing. And that is a that's a lucky bunch of kids right there. All right, golfer Justin Thomas is back in the winner's circle, rallying from three shots behind to close with a four under 68 in yesterday's final round of the Players' Championship that caps a 14 under performance for a one-stroke tournament victory. Thomas wins a tour event for the seventh straight year, his 14th career title, becoming just the fourth player to win a major, the Players' Championship, the FedEx Cup, and a World Golf Championship. Congrats to him. All right, time now for the weather. Let's go to meteorologist Bill Karens for a check on the forecast. Bill, how's everybody doing out west? Uh, they're struggling. I mean, it's the big dig out today, Casey. I mean, these snow totals are crazy in Colorado and Wyoming. We told you at the end of last week it was going to be just a nutso weekend for snow, and it has been. One area in Wyoming had 52 inches of snow. Now, as far as the big cities go, it wasn't like just in the mountains. Cheyenne, Wyoming had 36 inches of snow, and Denver, Colorado had 27 inches of snow, that being their fourth biggest snowstorm ever recorded. So yeah, pretty crazy stuff. The snow is coming to an end, thankfully, but we're not done everywhere. We still have some snow falling this morning in areas of Minnesota, also northern Iowa. That's this area right in here. And that's where we could pick up another three to four inches during the day today, maybe a little bit in Chicago and Milwaukee, but really no problems. And how about the wind howling in the northeast last night and all day yesterday afternoon? The wind chill this morning, Brutal. Negative three in Burlington, negative three in Albany. Even D.C. feels like 20. So for today, it's still cold in the northeast and will be warm in the southeast. Casey, we call weeks like last week where it was warm like that. We call it fool spring because, you know, it wasn't going to last. Winter's returned in a vengeance. <laughs> That's very sad. All right, Bill Karens, thank you very much for the update. Okay. We'll see you tomorrow. I hope it's going to be a little bit warmer later on this week. All right, still ahead here with a record number of unaccompanied migrant teens and children crossing the southern border. President Biden is sending in FEMA to help with the search. We'll be back in just a moment. There are 
more children, uh, about six, seven hundred more children, unaccompanied children coming o over the border. Uh, the, uh, this is a humanitarian challenge to all of us. Uh, what the administration has inherited is a broken system at the border, and they are working to correct that in the children's interest. We have certain responsibilities that we must honor. We have to have a system uh, that accommodates that, and that is what the Biden administration is in the process of doing. Welcome back. That was House Speaker Nancy Pelosi weighing in on the surge of children crossing the southern border. And the Biden administration is deploying FEMA to the U.S.-Mexico border to help care for that surging numbers of unaccompanied migrant teens and children overflowing detention cells and tents shelters. The deployment marks another escalation in the administration's response to this growing crisis. According to reports, about 8,500 teens and children are living in shelters run by Health and Human Services as unaccompanied minors arrive more quickly than officials can place them with sponsors. The New York Times notes that roughly 4,000 young people were in Customs and Border Protection facilities last week. That is more than the roughly 2,600 children and teenagers held in such detention facilities in June of 2019. The acting commissioner of CBP said nearly 9,500 children, including teenagers, were detained at the border without a parent in February. That is up from more than 5,800 in January. All right, to this now, Republican Senator Ron Johnson is facing backlash after comments he made during an interview on conservative talk radio last week. Johnson said he wasn't concerned for his safety during the deadly January 6th Capitol riot but added that he might have felt threatened if the mob had looked different. Watch. I knew that even though those thousands of people that, that were uh, marching to the Capitol yeah. were trying to pressure people like me to vote the way they wanted me to vote, I knew those are people that love this country, that uh, truly respect law enforcement, would never do anything to, to break a law. And so I wasn't concerned. Now, had the tables been turned, Joe, this could be in trouble. Had the tables been turned and President Trump won the election, and those were tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters, I might have been a little concerned. So many problems. So many problems. He's right. That's going to get him in trouble. A member of the far-right group, the Proud Boys, has been charged for allegedly pepper-spraying police. Again, those people that respected law enforcement, according to Ron Johnson, pepper spraying police during the riot on the Capitol. DOJ prosecutors say Christopher Burrell attended the siege dressed in tactical gear with an earpiece and armed with pepper spray. The Justice Department argued that after an analysis of photos from the day, the likely intended target of Rorell's pepper spray assault was the line of law enforcement officers present in these photographs. The photos don't show him actually spraying officers. Worrell's lawyer says he plans to plead not guilty and only marched to the Capitol on January 6th because of former President Trump's invitation to do so. Another person underscoring the former president's role in all of this. And this weekend marked one year since the killing of Breonna Taylor. Taylor was fatally shot in her apartment by police officers executing a no-knock search warrant. Hundreds of protesters attended the anniversary march in Louisville, Kentucky, still calling for justice in her case. My daughter is named Brianna, so, and she's a year younger than Brianna Taylor. So it could have been 
her. It could have been me. We're here not to celebrate, but to remember why we got to keep working. Brianna was not able to rest, so we should not be able to rest until um, people are held accountable. President Biden commemorated the anniversary on Twitter, writing, Brianna Taylor's death was a tragedy, a blow to her family, her community, and America. As we continue to mourn her, we must press ahead to pass meaningful police reform in Congress. I remain committed to signing a landmark reform bill into law. All right, still ahead here with COVID relief taken care of, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is pledging that Democrats will tackle infrastructure next. Will we see any Republicans get on board this time? But before we go to break, as always, we want to know, why are you awake? Email us your reasons for being up and watching on this Monday to way too early at msnbc.com or drop me a tweet at Casey. Use the hashtag way too early. We'll read all of our favorite answers coming up later on in the show. way too early. It is 5.30 here on the East Coast, 2.30 out West. I'm Casey Hunt. After a big victory on coronavirus relief, Democrats' next item on the agenda, passing an infrastructure bill. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has directed key Democratic lawmakers to begin working with Republicans on a, quote, big, bold and transformational infrastructure package. Here's what she said on Friday. We're way behind where we should be in terms of building the infrastructure. So I would hope it would, because it'll be in their districts. Again, they'll vote no and take the dough, show up at the ribbon cutting and the rest. We see this as a tremendous opportunity all across America, creating jobs, promoting commerce, cleaning the air, improving quality of life. And we hope that it will be bipartisan. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is expected to roll out its plan in April, including building roads and bridges, as well as a shift to cleaner energy. Joining us now, co-founder of Punchbowl News, Anna Palmer. Anna, good morning. Thank you so much uh, for being up early with us. It's great to see you. Um, Pelosi's comments are interesting to me because she seems to suggest that, okay, Republicans could get on board with this. And, you know, in in, in previous iterations of Congress, although maybe you got to go back decades at this point, this is the kind of bill that you could have gotten enormous bipartisan majorities because it would likely have something in it for everybody, something that they could all go home and sell uh, to their districts. But that's simply not the world we're living in. How likely is it, do you think, we actually might see bipartisanship on a bill like this uh, if this is, in fact, what they're going to do next? I think to your point, right, every single district, every single state has crumbling roads, bridges, need for funding to kind of help the infrastructure of this country. However, uh, just the way that the politics are right now, I think you're going to see Democrats try to go down some kind of a bipartisan pathway. But I mean, even Chuck Schumer kind of fighting with Susan Collins last week, it doesn't pretend that they're going to try to be able to work with a lot of the potential moderates here. So the question is going to be, will Republicans think it is going to be politically beneficial for them to just push back against Democrats? Or are they going to want to be able to say, hey, I did bring this road here. I did bring help this bridge that needed to be fixed to my community to help them get reelected. Yeah. So more broadly, I mean, this this all does seem to be leading 
into a showdown over the filibuster in the Senate. You're seeing Democrats also do things like push the DREAM Act, push for a background check bill on guns. What they're doing essentially is pulling popular pieces out of big, normally contentious issues and essentially daring Republicans to vote against them as they try uh, to demonstrate that Republicans aren't willing to work with them on anything. But President Biden remains opposed to changing the filibuster reform rules. What is your sense of how this dynamic is going to play out? Is there going to be building frustration among Democrats that's going to lead to a real change in how they do business? I mean, progressives clearly are trying to do what you're saying, right? Take those popular issues and say, look, listen, why can't we get this done here? Uh, so far, you've had moderates, Joe Manchin, Chuck Schumer has not seemed very open to necessarily changing the filibuster rules. I think that would be a massive massive change, obviously. And so to me, there would have to be a lot more friction before progressives would successfully move not only Joe Manchin, but also Joe Biden, the leader of the Democratic Party, to say, hey, actually, this chamber isn't working anymore. Maybe the filibuster needs to go. And this is all, of course, the way Republicans are approaching this about the midterm elections, right, especially if you look at what Mitch McConnell is focused on. It's all about power politics, winning back the Senate. Do you think there's any risk for Republicans in this or in, you know, if they if they are, in fact, basically blanket opposed to everything that comes to the Senate floor? And, and the only real big things that, that we see are two packages that are done under these complex budget rules that, you know, limit the way things can happen. I mean, do you think they'll pay a, a price for that or do you think it'll work the way it, it did for them in 2010? Right. I think this is really going back to the playbook from 2009, where Republicans basically were against everything that Democrats wanted to do. And they they got, they got significant victories there. Uh, the question to me is really going to be what happens with the economy. Uh, right now in Punchbowl News AM, we have a note out by Goldman Sachs from last night that says they expect the economy to grow 8%. That is very good news to Democrats' ears if that plays out to be true. And where we are with this coronavirus, right? Does Joe Biden get uh, the, the, the win here to say the economy is doing much better under me? And also, hey, this pandemic that was totally out of control is now, is now you know, we're doing well as a country by the time the midterm elections happen. If that happens, this could be a very risky proposition for Republicans to say, and we were just against it all. Yeah, it's, it's a very fair point. All right. Punchbowl News is Anna Palmer. Thank you so much for being up early with us. We really appreciate uh, your insights and reporting. And still ahead here, a historic night for women at the 63rd Annual Grammy Awards. Plus, how Yo-Yo Ma made for a totally different vaccination experience for those at a Massachusetts clinic over the weekend. Way too early. Back in just a moment. Tonight is going to be the biggest outdoor event this year besides the storming of the Capitol. Because, you see... <laughs> Time now for something totally different. Trevor Noah hosted the 63rd Annual Grammy Awards last night, and it was an historic night for women, with the top prizes all going to female artists. Beyonce set a new record for most Grammy wins by a woman with three new awards, bringing her total to 28 Grammys over her career. Taylor Swift also made history, becoming the first woman to win Album of the Year three times. 
this year for her 2020 album Folklore. It was also a big night for rapper Megan Thee Stallion, who won Best Rap Song and Rap Performance for Savage, along with Beyonce, while also nabbing the coveted Best New Artist Award, the first female rapper to claim the title since 1999. Other top prizes went to Billie Eilish for Wrecker of the Year, Dua Lipa for Best Pop Vocal Album, and I Can't Breathe by Her was named Song of the Year. Congratulations to all of those women. Great to see. All right. A statue honoring the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was unveiled in her native Brooklyn, New York. Artists Jillian and Mark Shatner designed the statue last year in consultation with Ginsburg, who gave her stamp of approval prior to its production. The reveal comes during Women's History Month and a few days before what would have been the justice's 88th birthday. The statue will be open to the public for viewing by appointment at City Point, a development in Brooklyn. And I absolutely love this. Those getting vaccinated over the weekend at Berkshire Community College in Massachusetts got a very special surprise. Renowned cellist Yo-Yo Ma, who lives in the Berkshires part-time, gave a surprise concert at the vaccination site. Ma received his second dose on Saturday at the community college. And while spending 15 minutes in observation, he took out his cello and he played for those waiting. The performance comes one year to the day after he first posted on social media about his project Songs of Comfort, sharing a video of himself playing to calm an anxious country as lockdowns began. How cool is that? And now there's this. If you've been sharing a Netflix account with someone outside of your household, attention college students everywhere, you might need to think about getting your own account. Netflix has begun testing a feature to verify users by asking for a code sent by text or email before being allowed to view content. If users are unable to provide a code, they will be prompted to start their own account. So far, the test has been rolled out to a limited number of users, but it might signal a larger effort by the streaming service to rein in password sharing to forego paying your subscription fee. While the company has declined to talk about the test in detail, it said in a statement, quote, the test is designed to help ensure people using Netflix accounts are authorized to do so. Better watch out. <laughs> All right. Still ahead here, President Biden weighs in on New York Governor Andrew Cuomo amid calls from top Democrats for him to resign. And as we go to break, let's take a look at this date in history. 56 years ago, President Lyndon B. Johnson called for new legislation to guarantee every American's right to vote. Our duty must be clear to all of us. The Constitution says that no person shall be kept from voting because of his race or his color. We have all sworn an oath before God. Do you think Governor Andrew Cuomo should resign? I think the investigation is underway and we should see what it brings us. President Joe Biden weighing in yesterday amid mounting calls for New York Governor Andrew Cuomo to resign. The president's comments come as prominent New York Democrats, including Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, have called for Cuomo to step down. Here's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's take on the growing controversy. There are multiple serious, credible allegations of abuse so that Governor Cuomo has lost the confidence of his governing partners and of so many New Yorkers. So for the good of the state, he should resign. 
A longtime advisor to Governor Cuomo reportedly called county officials to gauge their loyalty to the embattled governor amid this ongoing sexual harassment investigation. That's according to multiple officials who spoke to The Washington Post. One of the Democratic county executives that was recently contacted by Larry Schwartz, who is also the head of New York's coronavirus vaccine rollout, filed an ethics complaint with the state attorney general's office. According to The Post, the executive feared retaliation against the county's vaccine supply if Schwartz was not pleased with his response to questions about supporting the governor. When contacted by The Post, Schwartz acknowledged making the calls as a 30-year friend of Cuomo's, but said he, quote, did nothing wrong. Schwartz said that he did not discuss vaccines in the conversations. The governor has denied touching anyone inappropriately, although he has apologized for any past behavior that may have made people feel uncomfortable. Joining us now, Republican strategist and MSNBC political analyst, Susan Del Percio. Susan, good morning. Always great to see you. I think we should mention to viewers that in the past you have uh, worked for Governor Cuomo. Um, but we saw your tweets over the weekend uh, in the wake of all these latest calls uh, for his resignation. Um, do you think it's over for Cuomo? I do. It, it is. It's just a matter of time. That um, allegation against Larry Schwartz with making those phone calls to county executives is especially troubling. It goes back to one of the initial things that was hurting Andrew Cuomo, which was the bullying complaint. And by the way, this is how the office operates. I was there when um, the Moreland Commission investigation was going on, and it's the same thing. The office hunkers down. They go into lockdown. But what I'm also, yeah, what's also really interesting is Senator Schumer used that word. He can't work with his governing partners. This week, he, Governor Cuomo has to negotiate a budget with two people, one of which is heading an investigation for impeachment hearings, and the other is called for him to resign. How do you work under those circumstances? Never mind the staff is abandoning him and they're refusing to go to the office. So, Susan, I mean, take us inside the office, because this the, the this series of harassment allegations are also surrounded by what sounds like a, a culture uh, or at least that people have described as a culture of bullying. And frankly, the fact that, as you point out, many of them are, are saying, OK, I'm not going to step up to defend you, says something about that type of, of culture inside uh, the office. I mean, you've been there. What's it actually like to work for him? It is challenging. Let me first say off the bat, I never experienced or saw any form of sexual harassment in the office, so I don't have insight into the, those complaints. But it is an intense environment. Um, Andrew Cuomo is a perfectionist, except you never know what his idea of perfection is. So you always go in there not sure what to expect. It is a tough environment, and it does show you tell you something that the, even people who support him are afraid to go on the record because they're not sure if they're gonna say the right thing. Um, again, I, I really wanna go back to that point about Larry Schwartz making those phone calls. County executives are, in the, you know, this budget negotiation is going to affect them. Getting that kind of call from a senior ally of Governor Cuomo is a big deal, and it can be very intimidating. Yeah. So you're essentially saying that uh, that 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 premise that the, this reporting suggests, OK, he's making these calls to potentially intimidate people around what they they need something from him. They need vaccine 
uh, from Cuomo. It's it's a pretty uh, astonishing uh, story. So, Susan, what's your prediction at the end of the day? I mean, Cuomo is handling this in an almost Trumpian manner. I mean, with the exception of the fact that he has apologized for making people feel uncomfortable. He is saying, you know, the voters put me here. I'm not going to step down. Do you think he'll actually do it? There's some you know, talk. Oh, he refuses to step down. He'll never step down. I disagree with that. I think it wouldn't surprise me if we learned something later this afternoon or by the end of the week or sometime in between that he is considering stepping down. And he will because here's the thing. There's going to be more things that come out. There always are. Just this latest revelation about the about the county execs. We don't know what you know, we know news organizations around the country are scouring and looking for people to talk to, especially women. But he can't take this onslaught. And most of all, he has a duty to the to the citizens of New York. He cannot govern under these circumstances. That's what it comes down to. You can't work with people who are trying to impeach you and calling for your resignation. You can't get the job done. And I think that's where the rubber meets the road in the pressure for Andrew to resign. Yeah. And very briefly, do you think he might announce that he won't run for reelection as a way to try to defuse this, but not go all the way? He may try. He may do that at first, but I don't think it'll be enough to defuse it by a long shot. There's too many. There's too much hard, bad will out there towards him. He doesn't have allies. It's not the way he operates. You know, he operates from fear. He'd rather be feared than loved. Well, now no one fears him and no one loves him. So um, he can say he's not going to seek re uh, reelection, but it won't be enough. Nutshell right there. Susan Del Percio, thank you very much, uh, as always. We really appreciate you being up uh, and talking through that with us. All right. Earlier on in the show, we asked, why are you awake? Amber writes to us, I'm up way too early because this child fills my life with so much joy and sleep deprivation. Oh, so cute, though. Shout out to all those daylight saving parents who are struggling today. Another viewer tweeted this. I'm up way too early making spring decorations with the vaccine news. It finally feels like there is something to celebrate. That is very cute. And I am so with you. Christy says waking up with you gets me revved up for morning. Joe. Hey, that's perfect. And Richard emails refinishing the basement and the carpet is coming at 9 a.m. and we are not ready. OK, <laughs> good luck with that project today. All right. Coming up here, we're going to take a look at the Axios One Big Thing. And coming up on Morning Joe, after a major victory on coronavirus relief, we're going to hear from Senator Tim Kaine about what's next on Democrats' legislative agenda. Don't go anywhere. Morning Joe, just moments away. <laughs> 